I'm going to read those from the New Testament, and it's chapter 10 of the Gospel of Mark. And it's called The Request of James and John. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And uh, we're looking at this series this morning, and um, I want to start by telling you about a guy called uh, Jim Collins. Uh, Jim Collins uh, wrote a, a very highly successful business book, and they did a lot of research uh, of various businesses. It's a book called From Good to Great, and they looked at uh, over 1,400 different companies, um, they examined their performance over 40 years previous, and then they determined which of them were not just good companies, but great companies. Ones that absolutely flew in the, against the markets, against all the odds, and against everybody's expectations. And then they looked at those companies that had outperformed everything else to find out what were the secrets that made them fly. And uh, John, uh, Jim Collins comes up with one of the key things was to do with leadership. It was to do with the leaders of these companies. And he calls them level five leaders. And although his reference point wasn't the Bible, it wasn't the biblical idea, his description of these level five leaders is so similar to what we read about um, described by Jesus. Um, he describes them as able to show both modesty and willingness, humility and fearlessness. So there's modesty and there's humility in there. These, these people had a confidence, but not an arrogance, as they served their colleagues, as they served their communities in all sorts of ways. And historians can trace this shift back of humility becoming a virtue all the way back to the middle of the first century, all the way back to Jesus, in fact. And at the cultural context of Jesus' day, when it came to leadership, was very different to perhaps what we think. And so he says this, he says, you know um, that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Here's a different way. Uh, the philosopher Plato had said this, that how can anyone be content if they are a slave? How can anyone be content if they are a slave? And yet Jesus came and said, greatness is servanthood. And there was nobody talking about this. There was nobody talking about humility uh, in this way whatsoever. And the, the attractiveness of humility comes and has its roots 
in Jesus. The power of this idea goes all the way back to him. Because leaders of their day were very often military leaders. They were strong military characters in the Roman army. And the Roman Empire had the, the Pax Romana, which was the peace of Rome. And for the entire Roman Empire, the way they kept the peace with this diverse group of people, um, although they never really got to Scotland, I noticed at Hadrian's Wall, they, they gave up at that point. But with everybody else, they tried to kind of, they ruled them and they kept them peaceful by kind of squashing any opposition. Okay, ruthlessly, hard and fast, that was how they would do it. But that was very different to what Jesus begins to teach here. Um, humility was not a virtue for the ancients. In fact, it is reckoned that people would avoid gratitude. If I was indebted to you, that would diminish me. It was okay for you to be indebted to me, but not me to you. If I owed you something, then that was me. That wasn't good for my reputation. That was the mindset. And so the types of leaders that they had of the day were the philosophers. They were revered. If you were a philosopher, you could have a statue made of you. And uh, there's plenty of them still around in the world. Uh, or the military leaders, where they were greatest leaders. You know, the great Roman emperors. Um, the people who had the ability to conquer. Um, that was the heart of what they understood to be leadership. And then perhaps the wealthy as well. If you had good connections, well connected with power and families, then again, that was a, a status thing. These were the things that were valued. And the Greeks, they had their gods, and their gods were also great warriors. They had great military prowess, but their gods were not interested in how you lived your life. They were only interested in how you honoured them, how you responded to them in that sense. And so the model was crush your enemies and roll on. And Jesus says, no, love your enemies. Radically different. So humility in that day was a vice, not a virtue because you had to look and feel important. And it's into this that Jesus steps, and he shifts our thinking dramatically. So here he comes, Jesus Christ, born into this Roman Empire, the greatest empire ever. It's even eclipsed the great Greek Empire, you know, Alexander the Great. And he comes with a very different tradition, because he's grown up with something of a Hebrew tradition, something of the Old Testament, and the scriptures from the Jewish background there. He's not Greek, he's not Roman. And he's read characters like Amos in the Old Testament, who's spoken about humility and spoken about the poor and the humble. And it actually says that God favours the poor and the humble. Very different kind of background. But even in Amos, the, to, the, the word humble means to be humbled. It means to have something done to you. And Jesus comes and brings another dimension to it. He brings a dimension that says, that you make a decision yourself to lower yourself for the sake of another. Not just to be humbled by someone, but he says, if you want to be first, then you need to be the servant of all. You need to make yourself the servant of all. And so we have this linchpin verse right in the middle of Mark's gospel, the, the gospel of the servant king, if you like, where he says this. He says, even I came not to serve, sorry, not to be served, but to serve. Some of you may be familiar with Philippians chapter 2, this incredible passage of downward mobility of Jesus, where we hear about God becomes a man and, and man becomes a servant and, and even unto death and the crucifixion. Who being in very nature God, he writes, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. In fact, the correct translation is that. It is who being in very nature God. It's not although he was God, and not despite him being God, he made himself nothing. 
It was being in very nature God, he made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant. He was not disguising himself. Okay, he was not disguising who God was. Okay, that, was, that was the way the Greek and Roman gods worked. You know, Zeus and Hermes came down from heaven in disguise as humble people and tricked people as they did that. But when Jesus comes as a little baby, when Jesus comes as a, as a builder or a carpenter as he grows up, as he gives his life on the cross and dies, he isn't disguising what God is like, he's revealing what God is like. Who being in very nature God, you know, humility is not something that is in him in disguise, but is a revelation of what this God is really like. Even at his baptism, and we're celebrating with people being baptised today, when Jesus was baptised, he's baptised, um, as someone reminded me just a few weeks ago, in the lowest point on the earth. The Jordan River, the valley of the Jordan that leads to the Dead Sea is the lowest point on the planet. Okay? It's fitting today that the, the baptism pool is at the bottom of the steps. Okay? Because there's a humility there. It's about saying, there's nothing of me here, but actually I, I, I want to put my life in this God's hands um, that I've come to know. So we find ourselves at this moment in history, about, about 2,000 years ago with the cross. Okay, the crucifixion of Jesus. And uh, he's, he's there and he's, his power, his physical power is given up. Okay, he's at the lowest point that anyone could be, humiliated on this cross. And Jesus chose to go there. Okay, he's not there because he's humbled. He's not there because he was crushed. Actually, he was there because he willingly gave himself. And so suddenly the world has got a choice. Does this mean that Jesus wasn't as great as we thought or does it mean that we have to change what we think about greatness and the cross becomes the symbol of this changing point in history it marks the middle of it all it changes everything the cross and so to be truly great is to lower yourself for the sake of another humility is not denying your own status Jesus had great status he was God okay he knew exactly who he was but he channeled that towards the good of others. He gave his life as a ransom for many, it says in Mark's uh, account there. And so it's the historians, as I say, who can actually take this back and say this all started in the middle of this first century. This all changed. You know, humility becomes a virtue and is written about for the very first time. Not as about being crushed by another, but instead this idea of humbling yourself for the sake of another, just as Jesus did. And uh, the historians find it right, written about in a whole new way, as suddenly it is the virtue. And so we get this incident that uh, Judy read to us from, uh, with James and John. And James and John, two of the disciples, are wrestling with how power and influence are exercised. And they're still stuck in their understanding of the day, uh, as far as leadership goes. And so they approach Jesus on the sly, to put in their bid for a place of privilege um, in Jesus' kingdom. Because Jesus has promised the disciples that one day the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, will sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, Matthew 19, 28. And so James and John decide they're going to sort out the seating arrangements. Okay, we're going to get in an early request. Me on your left, me on your right. Because that's got to be the best place. Because there's your glory. You know, and word spreads pretty quickly, probably through Peter, who was uh, quite close as well to Jesus. And so the other 10 find out. They are livid, verse 41, or indignant, as it's said in that version. 
And the other 10 are not upset because poor old James and John have misunderstood Jesus' teaching here. Okay, they're upset because they're sneaky ratbags. They got in first with a big ask. And so Jesus is there and he sees this opportunity to teach them all, to contrast the world's understanding and his understanding uh, of power and leadership. Because he sees in them the same desire for power that he saw in the Roman and Jewish authorities. They lord it over them. They exercise authority over them. And so leadership here is equated with dominance. Now these guys, these disciples, are ambitious. They are striving for greatness. And there's nothing wrong with that, but their motivation isn't right. First of all, they're looking for honour. They're looking for what can this bring me? What sense of worth and value can I get from being close to the centre of power? You know, it's like a sun lamp. You know, the, the sun lamp. If I get close to the sun lamp, then I will look good. You know, I will glow like the sun lamp. It will cover up all of my flaws. You know, I'll look great. And, and that's what it is for them. They want to be close to the centre of power. They want to be close to Jesus' throne, if you like, so that they can bask in that. And it becomes like a drug to them. And uh, probably every profession has got its hierarchical set of statuses and standards. Uh, apparently just to ask a nurse about the pecking order in the health service. Um, I worked at the university um, for a number of years uh, in, the, in research over there. And what intrigued me was at coffee time in the department, um, everybody sat in order. Right? So the professor would sit here, and then the senior lecturers, um, and then the, the, the postdoctoral researchers, then the postgrads, um, then the, the lab technicians, um, and then the bottle cleaner and the stores guy. And they would sit around the table in that sort of order. I, I didn't notice it at first, so I messed up the whole thing because I just sit somewhere different every single day. Um, I quite liked it, to be honest. But the gravitational pull of status is very real and surrounds us. It can be very subtle, but probably it has a hold on every single one of us. So James and John are looking for honour. They're also looking for power. And power is to do with our comparative position over others. Uh, pride can be defined as power used to enhance our ego. And we can use different things. We can, it can be our looks that we use. It can be our intelligence. Um, it can be our wealth and possessions. Um, it can be our strength. All of these are different things that, you know, our physical strength that we, we use to fuel, if you like, our power and our pride. And so James and John here want to be exalted over the other ten. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, at its essence... Pride is competitive. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. And Jim Collins' good-to-great analysis comes back in here with his level four leaders and his level five leaders. The level four leaders were concerned more about their own personal greatness. A little bit like James and John are here. Their focus is not the long-term success of the organization or the company that they worked for and led, but that they are acknowledged as the reason for its success now. And if it all falls apart when I go, well, that's even greater testimony to how great I was. Collins's reference even takes an article in a blog um, from one of these guys on change. And he says he uses the word I 40 times and the word we just 16 times because it is all about him. And Jesus' approach to leadership 
was so different. It wasn't about seeking honour. It wasn't about getting value from power. Not so with you. Instead, he says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Servant leaders still lead. They lead diligently, they lead courageously, but they are not concerned with receiving praise. As the saying goes, you can accomplish anything in life as long as you don't mind who gets the credit. That's a great test, isn't it? You can accomplish anything in life provided you don't mind who gets the credit. And so Collins's level five leaders are focused not on their personal success, but on the success of the organization or the business or whatever. They are ferociously determined to do whatever to make the organization great. Because for them, being a leader wasn't about themselves, it was about something far bigger. Um, and this is effectively what Jesus does and introduces here, this whole concept. Gilbert Belzukian puts it like this. In one fell swoop, Jesus unequivocally rejected the hierarchical model and replaced it with an alternative contrast model of downward mobility, patterned on his own itinerary of humiliation from the highest glory to the lowest condition as crucified saviour. In John 13, um, there's a passage in, in the New Testament with the Last Supper. It's the night before Jesus is going to be betrayed and, uh, and crucified. And he's there with his followers, he's there with his disciples for this last meal together. And it's there that he demonstrates this humility in leadership. Because the disciples have forgotten to set someone up to wash people's feet. You know, it's, it's a dusty world. You know, people's feet are pretty manky at the end of the day. There's a pretty bad smell. It helps the meal if you've washed their feet. And Jesus picks up a towel and he says, I'm going to wash your feet. Okay, you haven't done it. I'm going to do it for you. But he says, if I do this for you, you must be humble also in your leadership. And I think at the very heart of this is the difference between power and authority. Because whenever Jesus spoke, and as you read the Gospels uh, for yourself, that authority begins to come through as it impacts your life. Um, he didn't use his positional power to coerce people, but he spoke with authority. Tony Campolo demonstrates the difference uh, in a story um, with Mother Teresa. And um, this is in, in the States. There's a state hospital in the US where there are people who are em emotionally and psychologically disturbed. It's a massive hospital. And the directors of this hospital wanted to start these halfway houses so that people could transition from the hospital back into the community. They could find a place, a halfway house, where they could stay, begin to get jobs, and then they could be transitioned um, from hospital and fully-fledged members of society again. And um, there was not a lot of locals that were too happy with the idea. And so this, this proposal is put forward, but the city council call this meeting. And the, the city council meeting is packed. There's 500 plus people at this. They're squeezed into this hall. They are yelling. They are screaming their opposition about it. Okay? They were very anti this proposal on these halfway houses. Not a happy hall. Okay? They didn't want these crazies, as they called them, living in their neighbourhoods. So the city council couldn't convince them. They couldn't convince them, um, and so the council themselves vote unanimously against the proposal. Not a lot of discussion. No sooner have they voted, 
when the back doors of the auditorium open up. And in comes Mother Teresa. Okay, she was in town for a ceremony, a dedicating a Sisters of uh, Charity program, and she'd heard about the meeting. So she comes down the centre aisle, and everyone's astonished. She comes down to the front, and she gets on her knees in front of the city council, and she wa- raises her arms and said, in the name of Jesus, make room for these children of God. When you reject them, you reject Jesus. When you affirm them, you embrace Jesus. And then with her arms up five times, she says, please, 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 in the name of God, make room for these people. Make room for them in your neighbourhoods. Five times she says this. What do you do if you're on the city council at that moment? The, the, the reporters have followed her in. Okay, 500 plus antagonists. Anyway, the chairman of the council stands up and he makes a pro- he proposes we change the decision. Then another seconds it. And then one by one, the whole council reverses the decision they made earlier. And the papers the next morning reported this, that the most remarkable thing was that not one of the 500 plus people packed into that hall muttered any opposition to the motion. Why? Because of Mother Teresa. Okay? She spoke as one having authority. Where did she get that authority from? From the streets of Calcutta. Loving and sacrificing for the poor and the oppressed. Humility and sacrificial love earned her that authority. The city council had the power, but they didn't have the authority. She had no earthly power, and yet she had authority. And when we speak with people with authority, people listen. But that comes out of us being sacrificial and it comes out of humility rather than out of the power uh, that we, we think we have or demanding our rights in this world. And so we see this virtue grow in the early church. We see it in the missionaries like Hudson Taylor who goes to China and, and dresses like the locals and lives amongst them and learns the language and learns the culture all in humility. You know, Paul, the apostle, writes in the New Testament, he defines himself at the beginning of his letters as, I, a servant of Christ, a servant of Christ. And in a world today, we know there are two types of politicians. There are those that serve themselves, and there are those that serve others. And we all know which kind we want. And the business leaders, as we've seen, have come to realise that this is true, that they are discovering it for themselves. It's that that makes a good company a great company. And so it's the cross of Jesus that changes everything. 